Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. Uh, we're currently here in Manila, Philippines, about to launch my fourth book of my kids' book series, all about travel here to beautiful Asia, including Philippines, where I'm now, and including Pakistan, where my guest is uh, joining us from. And my guest is actually not just any guest. He's actually a very, very, very good friend of mine. Uh, back in Vancouver, BC, Canada, where I'm from, and Nadim and me, we've been friends for the last uh, four or five years. Uh, we were uh, involved with quite a lot of networking opportunities, even doing business together. He's spoken at several of my events. Uh, we know each other's families. I've met his wife and kids. He's, you know, come over to my house. So we're definitely more than just business friends. We are, are uh, you know, like uh, personal friends as well. And I love, love, love interviewing friends on our podcast. And Nadim is actually a digital nomad in a very remote and unique part of the world. He is currently traveling, working, and living in Pakistan. And we haven't, in the course of our 500 episodes, interviewed anyone from Pakistan yet. Uh, so I'm super excited to learn all about Pakistan on a very selfish level, because that's a, a country I've not been to yet. Uh, quick little story, uh, Nadim knows this little background, but quick little story. I, my background is actually Indian, and I had a chance to visit India. And when I was in India about 10 years ago, I decided, like, let's go see the other South uh, Asian countries like uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Well, you know, Nepal, no problem. I got in. I was able to travel through Nepal. Uh, then I was able to travel to um, uh, Bangladesh. And then I was able to travel to Sri Lanka. And then I applied for my Pakistani visa and I got denied, not once, but twice uh, at different embassies. And what they told me is, you are a PIO, a person of Indian origin. <laughs> and they said, I need to go back to Canada and apply for the visa there. So it's a quite a little funny uh, little backstory that I got denied to go to Pakistan. So I have this desire to go there and uh, finally visit Pakistan for the first time. Uh, I'm super excited to go there and uh, see this amazing country. Every person that I met who's been in Pakistan, they rave about how beautiful it is, how friendly the people is, how delicious the food is. So you guys are in for a treat. You're going to be learning all about travel to Pakistan from my good buddy, Nadeem Ahmad. Nadeem is the founder of Virtual Agency. He's a specialist in the area of social media campaigns, ad campaigns, uh, branding, landing pages, sales funnels, uh, CRM, and much more. And I'd like to welcome him up here on the show. So, Nadeem, how are you doing there in beautiful Pakistan today, my friend? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate the introduction. That was really awesome. Very nice of you. Um, yeah, you're right. We, we actually do go back quite a ways. Uh, all the way from our small workshops to our masterminds to our bigger events. Uh, and obviously, we had an opportunity to engage and talk and not only learn about each other, but you know, learn about the space and the field that we work in, uh, which is a lot different from having a job or it's a lot more challenging than, than being in the same city for 30, 40, 50 years and then decide, oh, I'm going to go travel for a bit. So I guess to kind of start things off is um, to a certain degree, you have to have the right mindset to, to be able to travel. Uh, and as you know, I'm traveling with my wife and kids as well, just like you are. Um, it's a different story if you're traveling by yourself. You know, you just grab your backpack or your one piece of luggage and, you know, you're on your way. 
uh, kind of like how we do it when we're going to conferences and events. But when you're traveling with your family, uh, especially with younger kids, I know you probably know this firsthand, but you, you got to double down, triple down on your patience, uh, especially with kids. Uh, you know, everything from health issues, fevers, to tantrums, to, you know, like the whole spectrum. You have to be prepared for the, uh, what you're, you got to be prepared for what you think you're not prepared for. So from that respect, it's cool. But at the same time, the, the greatest blessing is that when you're traveling with your family, um, at least for myself personally, it's, I'm not homesick because my family is with me, right? Yes, I do miss the Rocky Mountains. Yes, I do miss, you know, all that beautiful Vancouver stuff. And mind you that my, my wife and my kids miss Canada as well. And they're like, hey, you know, when are we going back kind of thing? That's very true. Um, but again, when you're traveling with family, it's it's just so much easier because your, your immediate support system is there with you. Uh, so... For anybody that's thinking of traveling or, or working that, that nomad lifestyle that we're talking about is essentially to a certain degree, you need to kind of decide, are you going to go with someone or are you going to go by yourself and, and kind of structure everything around that. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely enjoying it. There's a lot of different things that have come up. Um, you know, I think we were just chatting just before we got on the line here about you know the different types of environments uh, be it uh, social be it political be it you know national or the country or whatever that you're in i do know that whatever uh, country you visit you got to respect that place for what it is uh, you know you got to respect the people the norms the culture um, and you got to be open to to receive that kind of stuff right a lot of us, uh, typically, it's just human nature is because we live in this box. And it's true that all of us, we, we look at life through a certain perspective. You know, oh, this is how I grew up. Or, you know, this is what my parents taught me. Or, you know, oh, when I was in high school, I did this. But then when you come to a foreign country, uh, you look at how kids are being raised. And, you know, you look at... Uh, their education system, and you look at all these other various aspects of, of life, and you start realizing how drastically different it is uh, from the way you grow up or grew up, for that matter. And to a certain degree, you need to be open to be receiving that kind of information uh, from a place where you really can't be judgmental. And the idea is that you have to have that mindset consistent reminders of that look I'm traveling like even though I am Pakistani I am in Pakistan and you know it's all good because I can speak the language I'm comfortable with the food and you know all these other things and plus you know I have extended family that's out in this country as well but at the end of the day you're only here for a few months or you're only here for a few weeks and then you're going to go back to you know Vancouver or Toronto or wherever you're coming from um, and in a way you have to kind of if you 
plan on doing something and it's in a great success, it's great because you can add that to your, you know, your, your history books, if you want to call it. Uh, but if something goes really sour or something really goes really bad, um, then you kind of got to sit back and, and just look at it and take that as a learning lesson and say, you know, if we end up doing this next time, how do we make it better? Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean visiting the same place in the same country the next time. Let's say from here, because on the way back to, to um, Toronto, we actually do plan on going through Europe. So we're going to be going through France. We're going to go through the UK. We're going to go through Italy and stuff like that. And it's the same idea that, hey, you know, um, we traveled here. This happened. And we had this challenge with our children. You know, something like sleeping on time, for example. It's such a basic thing. But when you have three kids, getting them to all go to sleep at the same time is a bit of a challenge. And it's not really their fault. You know, part of it is they're excited, they're like, hey, this is a new place. Part of it is most likely the jet lag because you're completely shifting time zones and you're kind of messing with their biology to a certain degree. Uh, and then third is, you know, it, it could be just the environment. It could be, you know, the flu going around or, or the bug or something like that. And you have to kind of watch, you know, where you're going and what you're eating and all that kind of stuff. You know, certain restaurants and all that kind of stuff, certain types of food. Um, but if something goes terribly wrong, you kind of have to look at hindsight and say, well, you know, this happened last time. What can I do next time for the next destination to prevent that from happening again? Awesome, Nadeem. Uh, so, Nadeem, I want to cover a little bit about your business side of things, and then we're going to deeper dive into specifically Pakistan and tourism there. I think people are super excited to hear about travel to this amazing country that a lot of people don't ever get a chance to visit. So, uh, let's hear a little bit about your work side of things. So, what are you doing in terms of uh, being a digital nomad, internet marketer, which allows you this freedom to work in Pakistan, to go to Europe, go back to Canada, and still, uh, you know, have the funds coming in? Tell us about your work. Um, I guess the first thing uh, for myself and anybody else that's out there that's listening that wants to pursue this is to actually have the mindset to be able to do it, right? Uh, it, sometimes it's one of those things where um, people feel and a lot of people get this impression from myself or probably even yourself is that we have to do this. Uh, the truth is we don't, right? We, we can all sit at home and, and get a cushy little job and, and work and nine to five and, you know, save up for the golden watch kind of thing. But it's because we chose to do this is, is what makes it just as challenging and just as exciting at the same time. Um, Work-wise, I've been blessed to... Um, surround myself with like-minded people like yourself, uh, like Dai, uh, Manuel as well. And, and there's several other people that I can, I can shoot off of a list of names that have basically, you know, we, we, it's interesting because we look at each other's families and we're like, hey, they're doing it. Why can't we do it? Right? And I think your family and, and Dai's family were like the first two families that me and my wife spoke about. And we're like, hey, you know, they're working, they're traveling. Mm -hmm. 
all right, that's it. Pack up your bags. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're going to start working and traveling kind of thing. Um, and then at the same time, if you have that mindset of doing it, then you also got to surround yourself with like-minded people. You know, again, you know, your family, my family, you know, there's a lot of other families here. Um, they're not necessarily doing the digital nomad stuff, but they, they have family in the country. They have businesses in the country, but they're living elsewhere. Right. And again, the whole commuting back and forth, being able to, to have that income and so on and so forth. But, um, to address your question, it's it's more that, that I've been blessed to kind of work in, in the field that I work in, where wherever I have a laptop and I have an internet connection, I'm good to go. Uh, and I'm sure you know firsthand experience that getting an internet connection is not always the easiest thing in the world. I think in North America, we're, we're a bit spoiled how uh, every downtown core has numerous hotspots and, and free internet and so on and so forth. But, you know, just kind of like, and I've done the same thing that you've done too, is, you know, you're hiding inside of a shoe closet because that's the best place you can get reception. And it's like your family thinks there's something wrong with you <laughs> that I'm sitting inside of a shoe closet, you know, doing my work. And, and unfortunately that's the best place you can get reception. Right. Uh, so that's just how you do it. And, um, again, from a work point of view, I've been kind of blessed because uh, I've been constantly, uh, seeking to, to build a team around myself. So what that allows me to do is I get to do the things that I love doing, which is, uh, the coaching and the consulting side and the business consulting side and, and teaching my clients about what they need to make a business that's profitable. And then through those conversations, we put some sketches together and some ideas together where we create essentially a game plan. And then I go back to my team uh, and say, here's the game plan. Okay. You guys go execute. Right? So again, I've been blessed in a way where I've surrounded myself with the right people, the right talent, where um, they love doing what they love doing. I love doing what I love doing. And everything that I don't necessarily want to do, I delegate it. It gets delegated, it gets planned, it gets scheduled, and hence it gets executed. So again, as a, as a digital nomad, now, from, as far as, um, running a business or, or even generating a, a consistent amount of income every month while you're traveling, everybody has a different definition of it, right? Uh, I know a few friends that are traveling and they're couples, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, and what they'll do is, and this kind of lends into the, the era that we live in, right? is uh, they will work for other people that own properties uh, for two months or for three months. And they have relationships with a lot of people, just like in your case, you're living in a house that's rented on Airbnb, right? And what they'll do is they'll just pitch it to someone and say, hey, you know, how many other properties do you have? 
you know, we're going to be in town for the next three months or six months. You know, we have all this international experience and stuff like that. Why don't we come around to your places uh, and this kind of tidy them up a little bit, make them look presentable. And we'll talk about it on our blog. We'll talk about it on our YouTube channel and we'll try to get you as many people as possible. Uh, and in exchange, they might get a discount on the daily rate. Uh, essentially, they have a job where they, you know, they're meeting and greeting with new guests that are coming from out of town uh, and they're being paid for traveling, right? So just something as simple as that is, uh, now that's very different from what I do. Most of the time when I'm working, I'm stuck behind a laptop when I'm working, right? Uh, you know, some people will, will look for jobs in the hospitality industry. They look for jobs in hotels. Uh, they'll look for jobs in restaurants. Because anybody that has one of the things that you may want to ask yourself is whatever skill set that I have, can I duplicate that in a different part of the world? Right? Despite being a language barrier, despite being a cultural barrier, a skill set is a skill set. Right? If you're a real good chef or if you're, you have X number of years in the hospitality industry, for example, you know, working for you know, four seasons or something like that, you can hit up all the other four seasons around the world and say, hey, look, I'm going to come by. I have 10 years of experience working in the hotel industry, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, you're, you're lining yourself up for uh, a position where, you know, not only are you going to get paid for doing what you're good at, you get to travel as well. Awesome. So uh, those are some great tips for people who want to, you know, uh, leave – normal or leave suburbia behind to start this whole digital nomad journey uh, and of course we have like 500 plus guests who've done exactly what they deem and myself and Di Manuel and you know other families have done uh, not all the interviews I do of course are families but uh, about 100 plus of them are digital nomad families and the rest are either solo travelers or a couple travelers so make sure you check out all the other episodes for more info about making money and traveling. So in this episode, I really want to do a much deeper dive into Pakistan. Uh, we love doing destination diaries about different uh, cities, countries, and continents. We've done uh, several different places, but we've missed doing Pakistan until now. Uh, so a lot of people are very ignorant and uh, they're misinformed to the media about Pakistan. Um, so I'd love for you to uh, be a representative of the nation. I know that's a big task, Nadeem. Uh, but if you want to give us a quick overview, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people maybe don't even know exactly where Pakistan is located, what's the capital, uh, how many people are in the country roughly, uh, the geography, etc. Like, is it uh, mostly mountainous or um, forested? Why don't you give us an overview first? And then I'll ask you a little bit deeper questions about uh, specifics. So give us an overview of Pakistan. Jeez, um, that's, a, that's a heavy onus to have on top of my shoulders. <laughs> um, this is okay, what happens so, when you travel, right? You're ambassadors. Like I, when I travel, I'm an ambassador for Canada. You, because we don't know many people living and working in Pakistan, you are the ambassador for Pakistan right now. So. The, the onus is on you and the onus is on us as travelers to be ambassadors for the country we're from or the country we have been visiting or the countries we're speaking about to people who've never, ever been there. So sorry for the pressure. Go ahead, my friend. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll kind of take a couple of steps back uh, in terms of how my experience was when I arrived in the first couple of days. Yeah, sure. And, 
some of the some of the things that really amazed me, even being Pakistani, and I'm like, you know, wow, this is different. So uh, when I first came to Pakistan, we actually landed in Karachi, which is uh, the the capital of of Pakistan. Now, some people differ uh, because the the business capital is Karachi of, of Pakistan, which is mm-hmm. because it's a port city. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of activity at an international level there. Um, the entertainment capital is Lahore, where I'm at now. Right. And kind of like the the political capital would be Islamabad. Yes. That's where all the embassies are, and that's where all the international relationship stuff happens, and so on and so forth. Um, Size-wise, geography-wise, uh, it's um, incredibly amazing because, first off, size-wise, Pakistan is very similar to British Columbia wow. as far as, uh, you know, the number of hundreds of thousands of hectares or acres or however we measure provinces these days. Um, it's about the same size. It's divided into f- four main provinces, Right. Um, there's the, the Punjab, which is, uh, North Eastern side. Um, then there is, uh, Sindh, which is the Southern side. There is the, uh, Northwest frontier. And then there's one other province. I can't recover the name of it. You have to forgive me for that one. Um, so and most of these provinces are divided on, at least to what's obvious to me, is, is the cultural uh, aspect of things, right? Um, different language, different people, uh, different lifestyles, different walks of lives, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and that is one of the, actually, the biggest things that amazed me the most about uh, a geography this small is even though physically it's the size of British Columbia, there's 200 million plus people that live here. So just imagine, just imagine if British Columbia had 200 million people. <laughs> wow. Mm. Um, and, and those are people that we can, you know, we have a head count for. Uh, there's a lot of people that have migrated here from Afghanistan because of their, their uh, circumstances of war and, and political terrorism and so on and so forth. And they are quote unquote illegal residents, quote unquote uh, refugees, uh, and they're not counted for. And they're in the hundreds of thousands of numbers. Um, but it's interesting because uh, a few months back, we, myself, my wife, the kids, we, we traveled from Lahore up to Kashmir. Mm. Um, a, a place called uh, Muzaffarabad, and it really reminds me of uh, basically driving from Vancouver to Calgary, right? Because of the mountain terrain and so on and so forth. And literally, that's what we're doing. We're we're driving along the mountains, and it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, you know, there's incredible fresh air. Uh, there's rivers going down and and, you know, sometimes, uh, at least for myself, I just kind of stopped 
I pulled the car over and I looked just over the mountainside where the road was just to kind of appreciate it, right? And um, I went for a walk and just along the, along the highway, you'll notice that there's, there's small little patches of land and, you know, small little patches of, of greenery and stuff like that. And for some people, this might not, might not be a big thing. But for me, it was, I was just amazed at, at, at a, you know, as I'm walking, I'm, I'm standing next to a fig tree. Now, I've never, I've had uh, apricots and prunes and all that kind of stuff. But sitting next to a tree that has like figs, like fresh figs, that like you can just pick them off the tree, wipe them clean, and you can eat them. And it was like, and I had a few and it was, wow, you know, it's delicious. And then I walk another 10 steps and there's a pomegranate tree. Right. And I'm like, damn, I've never seen one of these. And these are things that I haven't seen before. Right. I walk 10 steps again. And then there's another plant and another fruit and another tree. And it was interesting in the sense that there's, and these are all, uh, tribal areas as well, right? So yes, we have the political infrastructure. Yes, we have the cultural infrastructure. But then there's also the tribal side where there's certain families that control certain areas, and you know, and it's a mutual respect thing with you know with families of you know, hey, you know, this year or or you know, this family for example, um, it, they take care of all you know, X type of livestock, they're, you know, lambs, goats, whatever. And they have X number of acres of land and they are only going to grow, you know, apple trees or apricot trees or fig trees or whatever. So when you sit down and talk to some of these people, uh, they take a lot of pride in those kind of things because it's not just the one guy that's running the show, it's the whole family. And that family represents a certain culture or a certain uh, tribe, right? And that drive from Lahore to Kashmir is about five and a half, six hours. The, the language is different. The food is different. The, the walking and talking, the gestures, the body language, the dress code, everything, it's all different. And that was part of my amazement where even though we're all in the same country, I just drove five hours from one place to another place. And it literally felt like I was in a completely different country. Wow. Because they weren't speaking the same language that I was speaking. Right. And so for those people that are listening and watching is Urdu is the national language and as is English. Right. But I believe there's a hundred and thirty or so languages within the country that are spoken. Well, wow. right. So from everything from uh, Sindhi, which is uh, southern Pakistani language, right? It's a cultural tribal language that's a mix of uh, really hardcore old school uh, Hindu language. Uh, and mixed with a little bit of Persian. But again, you know, you drive down or, you know, you fly, take a one hour flight from here, two hour flight. And it's like, you're in a completely different place. 
Now, sin is a is all desert, very dry. You know, a lot of uh, tribal people, just like I don't know what you'd call them, gypsies. I guess they don't have a place. They have their own caravan. They have their four or five families that live together, and that's it. They go from one little desert trading town to the next. And it's literally like you've just gone back like a century almost. And, you know, the way they live, the way they talk, you know, at nighttime, just before the sun goes down, you know, the drums come out and, you know, they light, light a little campfire and they sing old folk songs, right? That's their form of entertainment. Um, so even though the, the geographic region is so small, comparable to British Columbia. There are so many different cultures, there's so many different languages. Um, and even though uh, Pakistan is a Muslim country, uh, the majority is Islam as a religion that's followed. Um, there are still a lot of pockets of different religions, right? There's, there's pockets of, of Christians, there's the pockets of Hindus, there's pockets of Sikhs. And despite whatever media says to us or whatever they preach, everybody's living in harmony, right? Everybody's, they're all sitting at the same place. They're all, you know, doing fair trade together, running businesses together and so on and so forth. Sure. There's an aspect of, um, I guess, cultural differences that have been there for centuries right? Uh, or religious differences that have been there for centuries. There's not much you can do about that, right? But you just accept one another and say, hey, look, you know, and everybody knows, hey, if it's your time to go do your prayer, you just drop your business, do your thing and go for your prayers and then you come back. And, you know, everything is as you left it kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Is that the long-winded answer to your question? Yeah, no, that was great. Uh, it's always great to hear like personal anecdotes about how you felt when you first arrived, your own travels through the country. And of course, you know, things like those statistics you mentioned, uh, that's quite phenomenal. There's so many people in such a small, dense area. And I, I love that the fact you corrected those stereotypes about the media. You know, there's a whole bunch of different religions and people and ethnicities and languages being spoken, but they're all living in harmony. They just, you know, trying to live the best life possible, try to provide for their kids and, uh, you know, doing commerce between themselves and living in harmony and you know uh, we'll talk a little bit about safety and security in a few minutes but before we do that um, of course when we're traveling one of the key reasons we travel is tourism uh, to check out the sightseeing uh, the historical cities maybe some of the world wonders or UNESCO World Heritage sites some of the natural beauty uh, so in terms of tourism uh, tell us about some of the major tourist attractions uh, places to visit in Pakistan? Uh, there's many, to be honest. Um, however, um, I think just recently I sent you a couple of pictures of... Um, yes, you did. Uh, Fort, Fort Lahore and so on and so forth. And there's, there's a lot of a lot of history in Pakistan, okay? Um, a lot of these places are considered as national treasures. 
uh, even though they may not be recognized on, on the international, uh, uh, I guess, platform as being, you know, sacred and special. Um, the pictures that I sent you were of the uh, Bajai Mosque, which is about 600 years old, give and take. And when I first went there, it just looks like a regular old building to pray in, right? And then I said, you know, since I'm here, I'm going to get one of these tour guides people to, to show me around. And he started explaining the history behind the building and, and so on and so forth. And, for example, at that time, I believe it was uh, one of the emperors, uh, Shah Jahan, or I don't know the exact name of who it was. But he came to this town uh, looking for a mosque to pray, and there wasn't one. So he basically orders his, his kingdom to come along and, and, and build one big enough where all the local surrounding villages can come here and congregate for prayer in one place. So that building, as we know it, can actually hold 100,000 people at one given time to pray together. Amazing. And it was used as a... As uh, a religious, uh, obviously, place uh, as a mosque. Um, and then between the battles and the wars between the different uh, ethnic minorities and religious majorities and so on and so forth, there was a time period when it was actually converted into a Sikh temple as well. Um, at that time, when it was considered, uh, uh, sorry, converted into a Sikh temple, there was a lot of changes that were made to the building. Um, it was also used as a horse stable at some point uh, where the military used to keep all their horses, uh, they used to keep all their military weapons and so on and so forth. Uh, like, for example, like the entrance of the mosque itself, uh, the gate is, it's about 35 feet wide by about 50 feet high. And the reason it's designed to be that big is back in the day when they used to have military envoys and so on and so forth, it wasn't military tanks, it was elephants, right? Um, and they needed to have gates and doors and hallways and pathways big enough for all these elephants to come in that were loaded with food and supplies and weapons. And then obviously there was like the, the elephant that came in with the king and the queen at the time and you know, a very luxurious setup for them, I guess. Um, and again, to, to facilitate that kind of uh, era in history, right? Um, and then right across from the mosque itself is the Fort Lahore, which is, again, I believe it's a little bit older than the mosque itself. The mosque is about 600 years old. The fort itself is, uh, I believe, close to 1,100 years old. Um, it was built before the, uh, the mosque itself. And back in the day, uh, the fort itself is what we consider to be our, our modern day downtown, right? Like that was the city, 
right? And after dark, uh, the gates are closed. So if you're stuck on the outside, you're stuck outside with the coyotes. So good luck kind of thing, right? Unless if you knew somebody at the gate or, you know, whatever to come into the kingdom. And it's interesting because it literally is a little city, right? There's a whole section of the, of the fort that's dedicated to all the workers, to all the labor, to all the people that are there. And then there's another section which is dedicated to all the guests and so on and so forth. And within the fort, there's a mosque as well, which can hold, hold about 30 to 50 people, right? also like the in the way of, and you know so everything was so structured at that time uh, for basically a whole society to kind of live together but now when you go there and I remember probably about 20 years ago there was a project that was started by uh, one of the history professors out in, in the UK they had um, started an initiative to uh, reconstruct or start rebuilding uh, the fort itself. So that work actually was underway, you know, when I was visiting, and they were retiling the outside, the front, and it just kind of ceased. It kind of caught me in a moment of surprise where. Right now, when you go to the fort and you look at the tiles, you look at the buildings, you look at the artwork, and it's deteriorated over, you know, hundreds of years. But if you can just imagine for a moment what it would have been like in the heyday, you know, like crowded with hundreds of people, if not thousands, and then the bright colors and the articulate artwork and the craftsmanship that went into all these kind of things to to build something for basically the king. Um, now, just uh, it's another example. What we learned was the the mosque itself. I'm just going back to the mosque for a minute. Was um, it was acoustically designed as well aesthetically. So. They have long hallways and corridors on both sides. And it's amazing because back in the day, we didn't have microphones and, and speaker systems and stuff like that. But the way the building was designed was there's a certain corridor. And literally, it was a, a tile on the ground that was colored differently from everything else. And when you actually stand on that spot and speak your voice echoes through that whole corridor. And not only can you hear the person about 50 feet ahead of you, it sounds like they're speaking to you from behind you. And it's one of the most magnificent things I've seen where the dude that's standing in front of you is talking, but it sounds like he's standing right behind you 
and speaking to you. Wow. That vocal, the voices would echo through the corridor mm-hmm. and you'd clearly hear everything the person is saying. So back in the day when there was, you know, if there's any public announcement for the, for the city, they would all get together in that corridor and they would announce it to you know, all the messengers and all the, the, the appropriate people. And then they would go on and relay the message to the rest of the kingdom kind of thing. It was also used as a school. So when kids are there and they're, they're giving lectures to the students or whatever, it's the same thing. Acoustically, it was built in a way where the, the teacher, the instructor would sit in this one spot and that his voice would relay all the way across down the corridor. And um, again, you know, during the call of prayer, for example, there's no speaker systems. There's no, you know, none of that. So at a bigger scale, the whole mosque itself is designed uh, mathematically as an echo chamber. So when the person that's at the front leading the prayer or, or giving a lecture, you can hear that person's voice throughout the whole mosque. And this is without microphones. This is without speaker systems. This is without any of that stuff. So you can just imagine that, you know, six to 800 years ago, if we had such brilliant minds back then, uh, you know, what are the brilliant minds of today doing? Thank you for sharing, Nadim, about uh, some of the major tourist attractions. I know some of those actually UNESCO World Heritage Sites as well, the fort and the mosque. Uh, it's incredible, uh, uh, those uh, examples you gave about the uh, acoustics and how that works, and also the size of the buildings, the fact that so many uh, hundreds, uh, 100,000 plus people could fit in one building. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, Nadim, uh, one of the other key areas of travel is of course the area of food and we love eating <laughs> we love showcasing food uh, you know Nadim and me back in Vancouver uh, you know I was part of a YVF foodies group and Nadim would be helping out there and one of the things we love to do at a travel is showcase food even here in the Philippines we love showcasing the Filipino food because a lot of people have no clue what Filipino food is they know what Chinese food is Indian food uh, Korean Japanese Mexican food etc uh, but I think uh, places like the Philippines uh, people are quite ignorant about the food here and people uh, a place like Pakistan a lot of people don't know much about Pakistani food because Pakistani food hasn't hit the global scene as opposed to like Indian food uh, you know Indian food obviously you can find Indian restaurants pretty much in every corner of the world uh, but Pakistani food uh, there's obviously some similarities but also major differences so why didn't you tell us about one of our favorite subjects which is food cuisine and gastronomy uh the food is great uh but at the same time uh again going back to the same example of you know uh, the different provinces the different cultures the different um backgrounds of different people so one of the biggest misconceptions uh, at an international level is that indian food is the same as pakistani food and that's wrong. Mm. Uh, it's also offensive <laughs> to a certain degree, right? Um, but, and, and even, you know, something that, like everybody knows about butter chicken, for example, right? Yes. And they think it's a, a, an Indian slash Pakistani dish, but it's not, right? 
Um, if you go back, again, going back into the history of things, um, when the Persian Empire or the Mughal Empire, sorry, was the, basically the ruling force, there was no border between what we nowadays call Pakistan and India, right? So that's why a lot of the, the historical monuments that we see that come from the, the Mughal era are also in Pakistan and they're also in India. Mm-hmm. Some of them are actually right on the borderline, mm-hmm. uh, divided between two different countries. Yes. So, uh, and they brought their own cuisine. Like these guys all mar- migrated from Iran, Afghanistan, and they came over to what present day Pakistan and India looks like. So the Mughal Empire and, and their cuisine was very uh, uh, nomadic in a way, uh, very desert, very dry, um, but at the same time, extremely rich with flavor, right? They brought a whole slew of, of spices and so on and so forth with them. And you take that and then you take, like, say, northern Pakistan or northern Indian culture, which is a hybrid of uh, Chinese Asian food and then traditional Indian food, right? Uh, I believe the proper term is called Hakka, which mm-hmm. is like a, a hybrid of the two cultures, and, and that's basically a Hakka cuisine, yeah, right? And then you go in this lower areas of India, so on and so forth. Majority of it is vegetarian, vegetarian cuisines. Um, then when you go into into Pakistan, uh, the northeastern side, uh, again, heavily influenced by desert nomadic people, Afghanian people. Um, so a lot of meat, right? Uh, a lot of uh, dry food, but extremely uh, healthy, extremely flavorful, so on and so forth. You'll notice that on the eastern side, they don't have the rich gravy, uh, you know, broiled in butter or ghee for five hours food. Uh, And a lot of that comes from uh, the lifestyle and the culture that they were living of, hey, you know, if we have to travel for the next three days, you know, I don't want to have tummy problems kind of thing, right? So when you eat something that's rich with gravy and butter and, and fat, it, it makes you slow and lethargic and you literally are in like a food coma for like a week. So again, a lot of the food that we hear about, a lot of the food that we eat, it stems from those historical and cultural backgrounds. Um, going into like the, the Punjab, which is the province that Lahore is in, uh, there's a lot of agricultural industry. There's a lot of uh, cattle. There's a lot of goats. There's a lot of lambs. Uh, camels, so on and so forth. So having access to meat is pretty, it's, it's regular. Um, nowadays, it's, you know, your, your, your dinner is not complete unless you have like a, a red meat dish on the, on the table kind of thing. Um, but some of the food is, is very, very good. It's amazing, like, because we compare the Indian restaurants in Canada and in Vancouver and in Toronto Mm-hmm. But then it, it's interesting how we think, okay, we're at the mother's source. So <laughs> let, let's see what it really tastes like. Yes, right? exactly. And I, I think of all the restaurants, I think I found one or two restaurants that have butter chicken. <laughs> right? Uh, 
and then I found like one or two restaurants that have, you know, other specialties that we rave about and, and oh, you know, every restaurant's known to have the best butter chicken in town. But then you come out here looking for it and some of the guys even looked at my face, they're like, what the hell is butter chicken? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as much as we may boast that it's a, it's an Indian dish or it's a Pakistani dish, it's something that's evolved over the time. Um, now, in our family, for example, I'll give you an idea. Um, for start, for this is from my, from my dad's side of the family. We have actually have one person uh, that we've known for like last, I guess, two or three generations. And his whole family, they have two main businesses. They're, they're barbers and they're also uh, chefs, right? And back in the day, uh, that was a very common theme where, hey, you know, if you're doing a big event like a wedding or a ceremony of some type and you need food at a, at a large scale, uh, just go to your local barber and he'll arrange everything for you, right? So right. Th this family has, has had that, they have that distinct, uh, I guess, structure in their family because they've been doing it for so long. So we had the... Recently, we just had Ramadan go by a couple months ago, and my sister was organizing food for the needy people and the less fortunate class. And every day, uh, they would actually create, make food for about 50 to 60 people. And then we would give it out in plates and stuff like that to homeless people and so on and so forth. But again, what that comes down to is you just make the call, the guy shows up with all the supplies and everything at your house and he makes everything at your house. Uh, you just provide him with all the raw ingredients and, you know, you get a fresh meal for like, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 to 200 people. But the interesting part is, again, every family has their own secret recipe on how they do things, right? And, and again, they don't share these recipes. They don't share these these things yeah. within families, right? Because that's basically their, their bread and butter. But the, the food and the flavor that you get from someone that comes to your home and makes you the food is, is very, uh, I guess, organic in many ways where it's, it's rich. And, you know, when you, and I had a chance to, to speak with him and talk to him and he's like, Oh yeah, my dad taught me all these recipes. And his dad is like, late 80s now and he's kind of just relaxing and then and i'm like so who did he learn that from oh he learned that from my dad well he learned it from my grandfather and so on and so forth so there's a very distinct trail of of who's who's uh, teaching who and then this also breaks a, a cultural stereotype as well where is you know women do all the cooking and cleaning right even though it's a business front or or it's a it's a family thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the chefs and the, and the cooks in the, in the house were men mm -hmm. and, and they would make the food for these big weddings where, you know, three to 500 people are expected to be there. And surprisingly enough for me was there was no measuring cups. There was no, you know, like, Oh, make sure it's just the right amount. Everything was like, all right. You know, he'd put a bunch of stuff in his hand and then dump it into the pot and, Five minutes later, he'd, he'd check the flavor and said, oh, okay, you know, you need a little bit of more of this, a little bit of that. And it was exciting to, to see it because 
they've done it so many times over and over and over and over that they could probably blindfold and make the best meal possible. Um, moving on from there to, to where we are today, like a lot of people have this thing in their mind where, where Pakistan is very limited or restricted or, you know, someone's got us into a chokehold, which is really weird because if I want Chinese food, I could have Chinese food. If I want Pizza Hut, I can have Pizza Hut. If I want McDonald's, I can have McDonald's. If I want to have, you know, Japanese food, if I want sushi, it's all available. Like, I, there's a lot of people think, oh, wow, you can get sushi in Pakistan. Well, yes, you can, right? There's some really fine dining restaurants that have that uh, level of cuisine. There's Italian restaurants. You know, pizza is very popular, very common. Um, every restaurant out here delivers. So McDonald's will deliver. KFC will deliver. Burger King will deliver. Pizza Hut will deliver. Um, and we think it's a luxury to go through a drive through and get a meal within five minutes. <laughs> exactly. <But> here, <laughs> here, everything gets delivered. Yes. Um, you know, Food Panda, which I'm sure you're aware of, is a, a really popular app for getting food delivered. Yeah. It's a very popular app out here. Um, there's also another really popular culture out here where uh, women uh, work from home. They have their own small catering businesses where they have their own small group of you know clients, so on and so forth. And again, it's the same thing, right? These are family recipes that are being passed down. Some are really good, some are really horrible, right? I let you decide what they are. Um, but what ends up happening is because of social media, AKA Facebook and Instagram, uh, they'll post food on Instagram, they'll post reviews on Instagram and that's how they grow their business. Um, but that's homemade food that you would get, you know, and, and my wife is a foodie. She's, uh, very happy with that kind of stuff. So she'll experiment with different families and different recipes and different dishes. And, and she's brutally honest with her reviews, which I love about her because she'll be like, Oh yeah, you know, this is really good, but this dish over here, uh -uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and sometimes because we're foodies, we've eaten enough dishes over time. We know something that was made on the same day. And we also know when something was made like yesterday and just <laughs> eat it and sent it. <laughs> and so, you know, things like that, you, 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 you end up kind of picking up on the way and you know how to regulate some of these, these guys that are out there making food and just selling stuff. Right. Um, some of the restaurants that I've, I've been to, uh, one of the things that I will really recommend is, uh, don't get stuck on the reviews. Don't, don't go on to, to, to different review sites like Yelp and just make a judgment call based on the reviews. We've had some restaurants that have really, really high reviews. And when we actually go there, it's a completely horrible experience. Uh, be it the food itself or be it the, the customer service. So put that thing aside. And if you're craving some kind of food, just go check it out firsthand. And if it really is horrible, then it's a learning lesson. And if it's really good, it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, and that's happened to us a few times, right? Well, we'll review, read a review that's horrible 
on a website or on Google. And then when we go there, it's like some of the best food that we've had and vice versa. When we read a restaurant that has like a 4.8 out of five and we go there and their customer service is just horrible. Um, not to mention that the food isn't up to where it should be kind of thing. So it's a, it's, it's more on you to actually take out the time to go and have the food uh, and experience it for yourself. Um, now, some of the delicacies that you may not have heard otherwise or about Pakistan is a dish called uh, maghaz, which is um, cow brain. So, cow, cow uh, brain. Cow brain, right? And I've had it once in my whole life, and it was a extreme shock to my taste buds and even to my, my brain itself. Because I didn't realize what I was eating until about 10 minutes later. So I had a bit of an experience. Um, there's another dish called uh, katakach, which is made. Uh, it's basically chopped liver, chopped. Uh, what else is in there? Huh? So it's basically all the leftover stuff of things that we regularly don't eat. So it could be livers, it could be heart, it could be kidneys, it could be various body parts of a said animal. <laughs> all right. But it's made in a way where um, it, a lot of spices, a lot of heat, a lot of oil, so on and so forth. Uh, it's kind of like, oh, uh, and it's made on a very big, big, a metal tray. It's like kind of like a huge frying pan, right? This thing's like four feet wide. And they sit there. And the reason why it's called katakat is the instruments that they use to dice up all the actual uh, the ingredients, it makes that sound. Katakat, 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 katakat. It's kind of the idea. So you can hear it from a while away because it's so loud. But uh, again, Every restaurant has their own recipe. Some of them are deemed to be very good, and some of them are just like, okay, this is gross because I can I can taste the liver and the brain kind of thing. Um, some of the best food that I've had is uh, Afghanian food. There's a couple of restaurants here that have really really good Afghanian food. Uh, not overly greasy, extremely flavorful, and so on and so forth. Um, there's a couple of, uh, I guess you'd call them continental restaurants, like Atlanta. Is that what it's called? Sorry, I'm, I'm referencing my source on the other side of my laptop. Um, so... It, it's continental, like there's Italian dishes, there's pizza, there's pasta, there's, there's soup, so on and so forth. There's the, the French cuisine, uh, Chinese, Asian, and it's really, really well done, right? So there's a couple of coffee shops, a couple of chains, a couple of restaurants um, that have that level of standard of food that it's consistent, doesn't matter when you go, and it's really, really good. Um Yes, we have had food poisoning a few times. Yes, we have had uh, some tummy troubles and issues um, eating at restaurants. 
And usually that comes down to having something or ordering something that is not in season. So for example, uh, we went to a restaurant where we had seafood. Uh, namely, we had, I think, prawn tempura or something like that. I don't remember. But seafood, namely prawns and shrimp, was not in season. And hence, myself, my wife, and my eldest son, we all got sick because <laughs> we all tried the same food and we realized it. And then I talked to the doctor when we went to go get some medication. And he's like, just personal advice, don't ever eat food that's not in season. So again, it's one of those things that when you go out to eat, you know, just ask around, hey, what's in season right now? Uh, and it just kind of keeps you on the safe side of things. Man, Nadeem, uh, the topic of food, we could do like 20 episodes just on food alone because I absolutely love it. I know, oh. you do. I know your wife is a big foodie as well. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons we travel is to try out the food. It's not just taking pictures and the sightseeing. Food is so much part of our culture because everyone eats and uh, the food is so unique when you travel. And even though we come from multiple multicultural areas like Canada or the US or you know other parts of the world, when you go to like a kind of a niche area like the Pakistan where the food is so diverse and multicultural, but within the confines of uh, Pakistan. So man, I was just hearing you and uh, I'm gonna rewind it when I head over to Pakistan and just like, uh, make a list and I'm like, check, 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 and uh, complete my own Pakistani food bucket list. So thanks for that. Uh, so I want to do uh, one last question, which is the whole area of safety and security. I know a lot of people have this concern about travel to the Middle East generally, but um, you know, like even Muslim countries, people have this stereotype because of blame the American media that Muslim countries aren't safe or the Middle East aren't unsafe or like Afghanistan, Pakistan, et cetera, are in a war. Um, but the thing is, like, every country is so unique and different. Like, of course, maybe Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan might not be a safe, quote-unquote, because of the war situation there. But tell us about Pakistan specifically in terms of safety, security, uh, concerns for international tourists who aren't of our ethnicity. Like, mine is uh, Indian, yours is Pakistani. So we can fit in. I can go to Pakistan, and if I keep my mouth shut, most people will just think I'm a local. But what about foreigners who are maybe... Uh, Caucasian or Chinese or uh, Latino who are not of a uh, brown uh, visual appearance, how can they be safe and secure? Um, it's interesting because I'm not Chinese, Caucasian, or anything else, so I, I can't really relate. But I will tell you what I know so far is... Um, there are certain territories, certain areas that even Pakistani people don't even go, right? Uh, kind of like the northwestern frontier kind of side um, mm -hmm. that borders along Afghanistan. And it's not because of war. It's not because of all the crap that media kind of portrays. It's, it's more of a it, it's tribal area, right? Uh, there, there's a lot of feuds between different families. Uh, there's a lot of feuds between, you know, property owners and, and so on and so forth. And any person going up there would be basically like uh, an innocent bystander, right? Uh, that just got shot for no reason. Uh, and then if you take that kind of crap to the media, it's like, oh, war on terrorism, blah, 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 blah. But the dude was just at the wrong time at the wrong place kind of thing, right? Uh, so... 
and again, when it's one of those things, you don't hesitate to ask a local person. Uh, if you're traveling, uh, try to stay within the, the metropolitan cities, the bigger cities, right? Um, it's very important to network with the right group of people. Like, again, I can't relate because me being Pakistani, me speaking the language and, and being adaptable and, and so on and so forth, it's easy for me to connect with people and say, hey, look, you know, uh, you know, my wife and I are planning with this trip, with my family, you know, what suggestions do you have? And, and people will say, hey, you know, if you're gonna go travel to Kashmir, make sure you take this route, don't go the other side, you know, it's not as lit, uh, for example, or it's really old roads. And again, one of those things is if you go down to, like it's common sense. If you go down a road that doesn't have any lights, it's old and it's bumpy, you might get robbed, you know, or you might get, uh, you know, just stuck in a situation that you don't want to be in. Uh, because again, in those areas, there's there's people that run tribal areas. There's people that that's how they make a living. They rob people that go down long, dark, uh, long, dark path. And that's common sense. You don't do that. Right. So uh, the advice that was given to us, Hey, go down this other highway. It's being built. There's a little bit of, there's a stretch of about 10 kilometers that's under construction, but everything before that and after that is perfectly fine. So asking a lot of the locals and, you know, getting feedback from people and, and then at the most, just using your own common sense of, hey, you know, should I go down this path or not? Uh, sometimes traveling during the day is a lot better than traveling at night. And to be honest, most of the time it is. Um, if you're backpacking or traveling by yourself, uh, there's a, a, an intercity bus system out here called Daewoo, where you can just go online, you can book a ticket, and it'll take you from one city to the next city. Uh, if we're talking about US dollars, probably like $15 or $12 will take you from one city to the next, uh, depending on the destination, right? Uh, a lot of these places, uh, they have accommodations um, to, to stay and to travel. Um, there's the safety in numbers, right? So, and there are people that I, that I see here all the time uh, that are not Pakistani, right? I get really excited actually. And my wife, uh, she's laughing over there because <laughs> she's like, every time, you, every time you see a white guy, you get all giddy and excited because like you're a little kid in, in a candy shop. <laughs> Man and crush. My, right. And it's totally like, Hey, you just wonder, Hey, where are you from? And it, and it breaks that stereotype, right? Yes. Oh, you know, because you're, you're Caucasian or you're North American or European, you're not welcome into Pakistan which is complete uh, horseshit, mind my language, but it, it's not true, right? I've had meetings, uh, business meetings with clients that, fly, that flew in from Korea uh, to do business with Pakistan. I've had people that come in from, from Indonesia or from Germany and, you know, they're fine. You know, they stay at the nicer hotels, they, you know, uh, interact with a different group of people, more of the, the higher, uh, I don't know if society is the right word, but more of the people that have more influence and more financial stability, you know, they, they travel in caravans of like three or four cars, you know, they get good, 
treatment as a guest of the country kind of thing. Um, and it's business as usual. And everybody that's scared of Pakistan, stop watching CNN. They say CNN stands for constant negative news. Uh, so, uh, you know, you've been a great insight of uh, wealth and experience all about uh, travel to Pakistan. Uh, Nadeem, uh, thank you so much for all these insights. Uh, what an amazing podcast interview. The whole reason I do my show is to educate, inspire, and to correct the stereotypes. A lot of people think, don't go to Pakistan. Well, here we are, Nadeem and myself, telling you, go. And this is what you see, this is what you eat, and this is how you stay safe. Uh, so Nadeem, if people wanted to uh, uh, connect with you, uh, to ask you questions about being a digital nomad traveling family, about your work side of things, if they want to create their own branding, uh, social media campaigns, and of course, if they have further follow-up questions, specifically about Pakistan, what's your website, social media, email, and how can people connect? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is through email. Uh, which would be hello, H-E-L-L-O, at virtualagency.co. Uh, drop me an email. You can find me on social media. Just search my name, Nadeem Ahmed. Um, and I guess if anybody's, they want to get in touch with me, they know you, so they, you're more than welcome to get in touch with me through Ricky as well. Yeah. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention was, and this is something that I came across, is... Um, for those of you guys that are wanting to travel anywhere in the world, not just Pakistan, um, and you start doing your research about different areas and different places, there is an online platform um, called Internations. And I'm, I think you might know about it as well, Ricky, or not. But it's basically... Yeah, it's a great organization. Uh, people... Yeah, it's a it's basically a community of people that are living in foreign countries um, that network together. So every city, every country has a, a representative, right? And you basically say, "Hey, look, I'm visiting for X number of weeks or X number of months, and I'm from Canada." And eventually, you'll you'll start reaching out and getting connected with other Canadians, uh, other Australians, other British. Uh, residents that have been here for you know a few years or several years and some of these guys that are are living out here um, they have jobs in the edu educational uh, academic industries so they're either instructors or professors at a local university uh, or they're doctors in a local hospital that are out here uh, on behalf of a projects at more of a global scale so they might be German they might be Austrian or Australian or whatever but they're living in Pakistan, they're staying in Pakistan, they're working in Pakistan. Um, and again, just to give you a comfort uh, level and a perspective of somebody that's not Pakistani but living here, uh, Internations is a, is a great platform to kind of introduce yourself, uh, especially as a digital nomad. You know, I travel from country to country. And if you start building your own little profile on that platform, uh, not only will you get some recognition out of it, because it's just kind of like a social media. It's like a Facebook for people that travel and live outside of their native countries. So yeah, that's, that's one of the things that kind of helped me just networking with people, um, be it for business, be it for work, be it for, you know, Hey, what's, where's the best Italian restaurant? 
kind of thing. And you'll get the Italian guy commenting on your questions and, hey, look, <laughs> here's the restaurant you want to make sure you go to, right? Um, one last thing we forgot to mention is uh, with the kids. There's a lot of places here, um, especially with kids that are my age, you know, uh, 6, 8, and 11, is there's activities for children. Uh, we've taken our kids to um, creative writing workshops. Okay. Uh, we've taken them to arcades. We've taken them to movie theaters. We've taken them. Uh, recently, myself and my son, we went to watch out the, the latest Tom Cruise movie. So again, just to break those stereotypes of what people think about Pakistan, right? You know, we have Porsche dealerships and Rolex dealerships and we have Hardee's and McDonald's and, you know, all the things that we're already familiar with when it comes to brand names and businesses and people, um, they're all there. Uh, you know, there's big malls that people go to and, and, you know, go shopping with their family and so on and so forth. So, you know, definitely come to Pakistan, visit Pakistan, uh, eat the food, meet the people, uh, you know, go to the cultural events, go to all the historical sites uh, and make it an experience that you want to have, uh, not an experience based on reviews in the media or reviews on online so on and so forth. Um, thanks, honey. One other thing that came to mind was uh, people that want to uh, travel back and forth. Yeah. There is a, a, a website or a mobile app called Kareem, which is the equivalent to Uber. So you can open up a Kareem account. Uh, you know, a driver will show you show up and you know drive you wherever you want to go so if you're staying at a major hotel you type in your pickup location just like uber and you'll get a, a notification of a driver that it'll take you know estimated time for them to come pick you up estimated time of your travel estimated cost and i don't think i've paid more than ten dollars ever uh for any commute uh you know within lahore within city uh, they also have intercity uh, commutes as well, which will get you anywhere from $45 to $50 in, uh, in your own vehicle, air-conditioned, you know. Uh, it's different from traveling in a bus, obviously. So, you know, you can pre-book your, your vehicles um, the day before or the night before that you want to travel. So that way it's guaranteed that your ride is outside waiting for you when you're ready to go. Um, yeah, so that was a, a great tip from my wife as a reminder that there are uh, Kareem drivers available to, to take you around. Great uh, last-minute tips. Uh, you know, we should uh, get you back because you have so much uh, experience and expertise, not only about Pakistan, but of course on the whole digital nomad internet marketing side of things. We didn't really get into the whole branding, social media, sales funnel. So we are going to definitely bring you back, Nadeem. Uh, but uh, this episode was uh, phenomenal just because we really enlightened people about this amazing country uh, of Pakistan where you are currently. So thank you for joining us live on location uh, from uh, beautiful Lahore. And I look forward to connecting again, my friend. Uh, thanks again uh, for being on our awesome. podcast. Fantastic. Thank you. 
All right. And uh, as they say, I guess, uh, what's a local word for thank you? Shukriya or danyabad or yeah. shukriya. <laughs> so shukriya Nadeem. Yeah. And uh, shukriya to everyone who's listening and watching. Make sure you connect with Nadeem. If you have further questions, make sure you connect with us as well, daddyblogger.com. And we'll catch up with you guys in the next episode.